What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you still buried in snow or ice? Or has your little corner of the world begun to thaw just a bit? One of the blessings of living in the Pacific Northwest is that our weather isn't as harsh as it is in other areas. But whoa, boy, can it be unpredictable. You know that old saying, March comes in like a lion and marches out like a lamb? Well, where I live, it applies to hourly weather changes in the late winter, early spring. One minute there's rain or sleet that's coming in sideways. The next minute the sun's so bright it nearly blinds you. But you know what else? Through it all, the asparagus in my garden manages to poke itself up out of the soggy soil. The crocus and the tulip follow sweet, and before long there are oceans of daffodils lapping at the shores of my meadows. <laughs> the weather is crazy as life can be too, but it's these little miracles that happen not in spite of, but because of the mixture of rain and sleet and sun that so reassuringly delights my senses while calming my soul. Know what else helps to get me through the rest of this chilly season? Reading. Immersing myself in a book transports me out of my own reality, places me in the middle of the characters that I'm reading about. That is why I have a book club on Delilah.com to recommend some good reads I hope will do the same for you. It's also the reason that I so revere book authors. Their gift is a gift to us all. Like today's guest here on Love Someone, he is the much-celebrated author Seven number one New York Times bestsellers, including true stories like Tuesdays with Maury and Have a Little Faith, as well as the novel that really blew my mind, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. All of his writings, novels, as memoirs have the same central theme of faith, of kindness, the power of community. He has honed the gift of finding the miraculous in the mundane and then shining a spotlight so as to share the goodness with us all. 
Let's welcome Mitch Albom to the conversation today, right after I say a few words about one of our podcast sponsors. I love Mercy Ship's spirit, and I'm so happy to share all the good they do in the world, providing free surgeries to suffering people who lack access to medical care. Today, I ask you to think about the last time you felt really good about doing something for another. Now, imagine feeling like that every day. You can when you support the work of Mercy Ships. You're helping to transform people's lives. Visit mercyships.org to learn the many ways you can be a part of the great work that they're doing. Mercyships.org. Today, we are welcoming Mitch Album. It's good to have you here. You started writing. You started your writing career as a sports writer for the Detroit Free Press. And now you are an accomplished songwriter, accomplished pianist, accomplished lyricist. You've written bestsellers. And we're going to talk about not one, but two of your books today, Finding Chica and The Stranger in the Lifeboat. The, I always say that uh, I wrote Finding Chica, which was a story of our losing our little girl uh, that we had we adopted from Haiti uh, when she died when she was seven. I always say I wrote that book in pain, and I wrote The Stranger in the Lifeboat in healing. And uh, so they are kind of connected to one another. Very much so. So let's, let's talk about you for just a minute, um, Mitch, because you've had quite a prolific, productive busy, busy, busy life. I think I'm busy. And then I uh, was reading about all the wonderful projects that you have embraced and opened your arms to and taken on. And one of the sweet things in Finding Chica was the way that you described your daughter and how she was a natural born leader and that she loved having kids to boss around and, and to follow her. And you said, you know, I don't know where that came from, if that was something that she got in the early years of her life or having raised as many kids as I've raised, some that I gave birth to, most that I adopted, I can tell you because you did not get her at birth, but I I did raise several from birth. They're born with that. They're born with that. And I think God put you two together because it sounds like you were born with that. Well, she certainly had me beat if I was born with it. Uh, she just basically did, led me around by the nose. Uh, but, uh, you know, for people who don't know the background on it, I, I, I went to Haiti 12 years ago after the earthquake of 2010, a couple of weeks after it, on a fact-finding trip with a, a pastor who said that his uh, orphanage had been destroyed. And... Uh, before long, I ended up taking over that orphanage, and I've been there ever since. I'm there every month of my life for the last 12 years. I'll be there every month of my life if I don't move there for the rest of my life. And uh, I have 54 children now that we raise there at the orphanage, and Chica was one of them. She came to us when she she was born three days before the earthquake, so she actually survived the earthquake as a three-day-old. Uh, the house that she was in collapsed around her, but uh, she and her mother were spared because the roof fell backwards and they were just kind of left on the bed out in the open, you know, naked to the sky. So that night she slept in a bed of sugarcane leaves uh, in the dirt and that, that was her bed for the next six weeks. So 
you'd have to say she was born pretty tough. And uh, she remained that way, even when she came to us a couple years later after her mother died during childbirth of a baby brother. And she lived with us uh, at the orphanage for several years. And she was, as you say, Delilah, the bossiest, pushiest kid that we had and uh, loud. I mean, she was like Ethel Merman in size two shoes. You could hear her from across the way. It didn't matter if she opened up and bellowed out. You, you could be across the street and you know it was her. And, and we, you know, she was just delightful. She was, you know, that kid, uh, Chica. Everybody said, oh, that's just Chica. That's just Chica. And then when she was five, she developed a brain tumor and we brought her to America thinking that, well, American doctors will take it out and we'll bring her right back to Haiti and she'll resume her life. And instead she never went home and uh, she became our daughter and we traveled around the world trying to find a cure for this incurable disease that she had. And uh, she lived two years, which is about a year and a half longer than she was supposed to live. And during that time, we ultimately didn't find a cure, but we did find something else. We found a family, uh, my wife and Chica and me, and we never had children of our own, even though I have 54 <laughs> orphans. Uh, and uh, Chica suddenly was a five-year-old who was sleeping at the foot of our bed and waking us up for breakfast and giving us this chance at all these amazing, incredible things that you get when a child comes into your life. And, um, you know, when she died, I was very angry at the world and at God in particular, because I didn't think that there could be a benevolent God who would not be benevolent to a seven-year-old, especially one who had suffered as much as she had. And I wrote the book Finding Chica because I wanted to tell her story about the two of us and, and, and her life, you know, while it was all in my heart and my head, because it was all I could think about. And as I say, it was kind of written in pain, even though I think it's a pretty hopeful and good spirited book, you know, it's not a horrific book, you know, from the page one of finding Chica that she dies, it's not a mystery. And she actually comes back and is talking to me as, as kind of her ghost and, uh, and visiting with me all that time when we tell her story. And then a few years later, when it, you know, enough time had passed, I began to sit down to write a book that was about healing and about what happens when we cry out for help, as I had cried out for help with Chica and we don't get it in the form that we want it. And how do we react to that? And that's what The Stranger in the Lifeboat is about. You're amazing. You're amazing. Thank you for going to Haiti. Thank you for saying yes. I don't know many people that would have done that. Well, I think, I think once, you, once you see the kids, an awful lot of people would have done it. I, I just happen to have the means to be able to you know, go down monthly and then you get ensnared by those children. And uh, of the 54 that we have there, 49 of them were kids that I had to admit, you know, uh, there were five that were there when I first got there. But the other 49 are children who were bought to us by whomever, you know, uh, a relative, a grandparent, a sister. They were found out in the street. You know, one of our children was left to die in the woods and uh, someone found them there crying, no name, no birth certificate, no anything, and, and, and brought them to us. Another kid was left at a malnutrition center uh, and in the hallways for two years. No one ever picked him up. Uh, you know, he, 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 he dwindled down to 14 pounds. 
And then he was brought to us again, no names or birth certificates or knowledge or anything. And when you are the, you're the thing standing between a child like that, you know, maybe living or dying, there's no options. There's no patting yourself on the back. There's no, uh, oh, aren't we great for doing this? You, you, you're just desperate to save the child when you see the conditions that they're in. And so, of course, we'll take, but bring that child here. We have to, we have to get them food and water and medicine and all those things. So I'm pretty sure you, Delilah, or anybody who's listening to this, if they happen to be in that situation, would do the same thing. Well, I do the same thing in Ghana. <laughs> there you go. But uh, it's hard. You know, we take people over every year, um, every every chance we get, and hope that they'll see what you just said and jump in and say, yeah, yeah, I'll do this. I'll partner with you. I'll come alongside you. And I don't know. I don't know how you can see a child who's starving and not say, yes, I will feed this child. I will commit to feeding this child every day for the rest of their life. Right. I made little uh, notes in the book about uh, some of the profound wisdom that you included that was so sweet that unless you are looking for that help or that hope, maybe, you might miss it. But one of the things that you said in Finding Chica is there are many kinds of selfishness in this world, but the most selfish is hoarding time because none of us knows how much we have, and it is an affront to God to assume there will be more. Yeah. That is probably the most profound thing I have read in several months because it's so true. It is true. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote it out of having learned it the hard way, you know, to assume that, oh, there's always going to be time. I think when I was writing about it, I was talking about my younger years and when I was just working, 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 working and figuring we would get around to starting a family and we get around to all the things that we never got around to. And to presume that there's going to be time is, you know, an affront to God because every day is a gift. And you say, well, good, I'm getting a gift today. I'm sure I'll get the gift tomorrow and I'm sure I'll get the gift next week and the gift next year. And that's, that's being ungrateful. And of course, Chica, when you lose a child, you realize how precious every day is, you know, when the child only gets to live seven years, you recount every day of it. But, uh, you know, I've, I've learned a lot of lessons along the way. And uh, I try to, uh, almost everything that you'll read in one of my books is pretty much me having done something stupid and then having had to figure <laughs> out the sentence that I ultimately end up writing in the book, which is the case of what you just brought up. Uh, I love your honesty about that. Um, the Stranger in the Boat. I, I haven't received my copy yet. I ordered it. So hopefully it'll be here today, but it didn't get here in time to have this conversation. So I did I did research the last week, and I'm I'm reading everything I can, all your comments from readers who who read it and loved it, and I'm thinking just from what I've read, this this might uh, end up like uh, Tuesday, where it needs to be you know maybe put on the screen. Oh, that's actually already in motion. Believe it or not, the uh, the stranger in the lifeboat from a reception point of view you know sales or something has been the biggest book i've written in 10 years i'm not quite sure why um I, I uh, think let's maybe... look around us and say who yeah. needs a lifeboat now more than ever oh yeah the world 
maybe uh, COVID and had something to do with it. But the, uh, you know, the premise of it, uh, you know, I, I always set out in my books, I, you know, and I'm, not, I'm not like some other writers who start with the plot, which is a great way to do it. I just, for me, it, it always seems that I have an idea that I want to explore. And once I said, okay, I want to write about that idea, then I decide, okay, let me come up with a plot that kind of fits that idea. So in this case, as I said, I wanted to write about asking for help, not just because over the last couple of years, we've all asked for help in one way, shape or form, you know, please help me not get COVID. Please help my relatives in the hospital, you know, not die from COVID. Please let me keep my job. You know, there's so much kind of crying out to the universe for help, but also because, as I say, I kind of went through this experience of my wife and I losing a child, and that's the ultimate sort of crying out for help. And, um, and so I thought, well, where's the most desperate situation that I can create to try to explain this kind of theory of crying out for help and maybe not knowing that help is coming, even if we you know, don't recognize it? And so I thought, well, how about a lifeboat? And the first couple of pages of the book are basically set up the whole thing that there's this luxury yacht that owned by one of the richest people in the world. He invites all his rich, famous friends on and they're all out there, uh, you know, having a, a grand time. And all of a sudden the boat explodes and everybody is killed except 10 people, five of whom are the rich guests and five of whom are the staff who were serving them on the boat. And they find their way to this life raft. And they're floating out there for three days and nobody's coming for them. And they see sharks in the water. They're running out of food. They, they, you know, they, it's hot and, and they realize this could be the end. And in all their own particular ways, they're crying out for help. And suddenly they see this body floating in the water and they pull it into the raft. And it's this young guy, very nondescript, average looking guy, nothing special about him. And they pepper him with questions. He doesn't speak. And finally, one of the women says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. And that's the setup for the book. And it becomes this question of what do you believe and, and you know, where do you accept your help? Everybody on the boat doesn't believe he is who he claims because he doesn't look the part and he gets thirsty and he gets hungry and he sleeps a lot. And so they just think he's some kook who banged his head, you know, and when he keeps saying, I'm the Lord, and they say, what are you doing here? And he says, well, haven't you been calling me? I, I came because you called me. And they say, well, are you going to save us? And he says, well, I can only save you if everybody in this boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. And as simple a thing as that would be to do, especially if you're out in the middle of the ocean with sharks around you and no food and no water. You think, well, how hard is it to just believe in something? But they don't. And so as the days go by, you know, more mysterious things keep happening. And, and you're left as a reader to sort of try to figure out, well, is this guy really who he says he is or is he not? And, and the, the point of it is that sometimes the help that we ask for when we're really down uh, it doesn't come the way we want it to. And I think especially Americans, when we ask for help, we pray. We kind of want the help like that, you know, like we're ordering a sandwich. Like we rub the magic lamp and the genie appears yeah. and grants our wish. Right. And when it doesn't come, we get like a little ticked off, like, well, that's not the sandwich I ordered, you know, or this isn't it. Or, and, and yet I have observed, Delilah, that 
and I'm old enough now to, to say this, like I say, I've made many mistakes the opposite way. Um, God, the universe, whatever you choose to believe in, it doesn't operate on our timetable. Uh, but if you think about how many times in your life you look back on something that was bad that happened, and then you end up saying, well, you know, when it happened at the time, I was really upset. It was terrible. But if that hadn't happened, then this wouldn't happen. I wouldn't have had to move here. I wouldn't have met this, but we wouldn't have gotten married. We wouldn't have... And you say, well, I guess that kind of in its own way was the best thing that could have happened to me. Well, if it's the best thing that could have happened to you 10 years from now, it is the best thing that could happen to you right now. It's just we don't see it that way because we, we only see what's right in front of us. And I kind of to take this full circle. I realized that, you know, losing Chica, uh, when I kept looking at it from the point of view of losing her, I wasn't looking at it from the point of view of getting her. Uh, I wasn't looking at it at the point of view that she was a gift, that my wife and I in our mid-50s suddenly had the chance to have a family and have a child and, 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 and have a, yeah, all the joy that you get from having a child in your life after never having had it. That's a gift. That's an answer to a prayer that we made 15 years earlier that we thought wasn't answered, but it was answered. It just was answered later. And, you know, the stranger in the lifeboat kind of tries to explore all that kind of stuff. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I knew when I was reading the comments from listeners and just from the descriptions that I had read, I knew that just from that, just from the comments from from your readers, that it was going to have a profound impact on people. I heard a, a man speaking one time whose daughter had developed bone cancer. She was training to be a professional ballet and she fell and broke her femur. And they're like, nobody breaks their femur. And it was because she had a tumor in her leg and Ooh. she had to have the leg amputated, which ended her hopes of being a professional dancer. Uh, actually it didn't because she went on to become a teacher, um, a dance teacher. But it ended his life for seven years. He was unable to to move past it and just mm. kept saying, why, 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 God, why? Why would you punish a child that had never done anything wrong? Why, why, why? And he yeah. said, when I stopped asking why and started asking what now, what would you have me do now? Um, he was able to put his life back together. And yeah. the same year you lost your daughter, I lost a son. Yeah. And I trying to remember that message. What would you have me to do now? Yeah. Well, there's a moment in this book that has become um, 
kind of it's been so cited by the people who have read it that I know the page number 241. Uh, and people keep writing to me about page 241. Why did you write page 241? How did you come up with page 241? And it's a moment where one of the passengers on the boat in kind of a desperation, it's not the end of the book, but it's three quarter mark and kind of desperation for everything that's happened. And he's mourning his wife who, who died. And he turns to the God character and says, you know, why did you take my wife? Why did she have to die? And the answer that comes is, why is it that when a human being dies, his loved ones always say, why did God take them? Maybe a better question would be, why did God give them to us? What did we do to deserve or merit their attention, their love, the memories? Didn't you have that with your wife? And the guy says, every day. And the answer is, well, those memories are a gift, but their absence is not a punishment. I'm not cruel. I don't take things away from you to punish you. This world is just part of the story. I know that you cry when your loved ones leave this planet, but I can assure you they're not crying. And when people have asked me, you know, well, where did you write that? Well, obviously I wrote that for myself. I wrote that so that I could deal with Chica not crying here, even though we're crying for her here. And to look at it as, what did I do to get a chance to be a father at 55 years old? Uh, why? You know, nobody gets that. And yet I did. And yet my response is, how could you take that away? And the response should be, Thank you for giving me that even for a day, let alone for two years. And when that's not an easy thing to do, it was easy to write, you know, something like that down after four grueling years of, of putting yourself through the through the ringer. I wouldn't have been able to write that sentence or page 241 a year or a month or a week after Chica died. But that's what I mean about time. You know, time is its own medicine. And uh, time is, is in something else's hands than ours. If you believe in God, then it's in God's hands. If you just believe in the universe, then it's in the universe's hands. But it is not in ours. And it's the one thing that, that, that frustrates us and leaves, you know, leaves us so maddened because we want to control everything. You know? And yet we still can't control the time that we get. Uh, the little amount of it or the long amount of it. And, and uh, you know, all these different characters in The Stranger in the Lifeboat, they sort of end up posing the questions to God that I would ask God, or I imagine, Delilah, you would ask if instead of having me as a average guest, you got a special guest like God, and God was your, say, we're going we're gonna to do a podcast with God today, and I've got a few questions for God. Here they are. And uh, I tried to sort of put those questions in the mouths of the, of the passengers in the boat. Wouldn't that be amazing if we could do that? I yeah. said to, to my pastor one time, I said, I just wish he would write me a letter and explain this to me because I can't, I can't figure anything out. He said he did. <laughs> it's called the Bible. You don't read that. You wouldn't read a letter either. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh -oh. So how, how is your wife holding up? 
You mentioned in your book about Chica that you two had kind of made come to a decision not to argue in front of her, not to talk about her condition in front of her because she was there to make you happy. Yeah. How is she holding up and has she found her God in the lifeboat? Um, well, my wife has always been more faithful uh, and, and, and had a purer faith than I have. And it helped carry her through uh, the whole time that Chica was sick and even after Chica was gone. Um, I was the one who questioned things. She never did. But you mentioned that moment where I remember that, where we were in the hospital and uh, something happened at my job that I took a phone call and I found it was really frustrating. It was a really stupid thing that was becoming a big thing and it shouldn't have. And, and I said something and Janine said something and we were going back and forth and, and, and just, I was frustrated and she was frustrated and Chica was in, was in the bed and she said, Hey guys, Hey guys, that's how she would call us. Hey guys, what are you fighting about? You know? And I felt so bad at that moment. Hey, guys. And uh, I said, what are we doing? You know, like we're in a hospital room. Of course, we'd spent a lot of time in hospitals. So it wasn't, wasn't a new experience. But um, I walked over to Chica and I said, it's all right, sweetheart. I'm sorry. You know, um, it's nothing. And, and she, she said that she was sad or, you know, and I said, well, why? Why, why does it bother you? She said, because I can't make you happy. You know, and I realized that she was, when we were arguing, she was taking it on herself, like, I need to do something to make them happy. And when a child is afflicted with a brain tumor and she's in a hospital bed and and she's thinking about, well, what am I supposed to do to make them happy? The least you can do is not make that child unhappy. And uh, And you know what? In its own way, Delilah, that moment, and others like it, kept Janine and I from going down a path that a lot of people who lose children go down. A lot of couples break up after a child dies. More than 70%. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah I know it was high. And, and I understand that because every time you look at your partner, you're seeing the ghost of, of, of your child as well. And then there's, you know, there's these subtle, well, maybe you should have done something more. Why didn't you help do, do more? But we never had that because Chica made sure that she held us together, you know, throughout the process. We knew like it would, it would be such a dishonor to Chica for us to break up. That would be the worst thing we could do to her memory. Chica, when we were in, um, when we were in uh, Germany, we lived in Germany for a little while at, for these immunology treatments that you can't get here in the States. And uh, we had to live in this tiny little flat. You know, we have a nice, comfortable house here in Michigan. It's plenty. Everybody has their room and everything. But there we had to live in this one room apartment, had one bathroom, the single bedroom, one bed. So we all had to sleep in the same bed, which, of course, at our age, we weren't crazy about. But Chica loved it because, like, she had us all to herself and there was no one else there. And we were around her all the time. And so I would sleep on one side and Janine would sleep on the other and Chica would sleep in the middle. And this one time in the evening, we're about to go to bed and Chica goes, Mr. Mitch, Miss Janine, Mr. Mitch, Miss Janine. We said, what? She goes, kiss, 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 kiss. She loved to watch, you know, princes and princesses kiss and stuff. So we were in like a little tent, you know, teepee over her in the bed. So we kissed and she was underneath us and she started to clap. And she said, now you can live happily ever after. And uh, 
you can't dishonor that wish uh, by breaking up or getting mad at each other. And I think we just tell those kinds of stories to one another and they bring us closer together. So our, our love for Chica is a unifying thing. And in our case, we're very fortunate because you know the couples who do split up, they've done nothing wrong. It's just grief is taking a different hold on them. You know, it's coming at them from a different angle, like a wrestling move. Um, that one takes them down, and we got we managed to escape. So we're very lucky. You are very blessed. You are very blessed, and you have been a blessing to so many. You know, it would be fun is if I could go with you to Haiti and interview some of those kids. Come on. It's no problem. Meet me there. I'll, we'll pick you up at the airport. I probably met you there. I was probably there because I was there three days after the earthquake when you were. Well, come on back. Yeah. Our kids are good interviews. I know they are. I know they are. Most of the work I do is in Ghana. And in Ghana, the buses are called Trotros. In, in Haiti, they're tap-taps. But tap, tap. if anybody wants to smile <laughs> look up online the tap tap buses in haiti the artwork is mind-boggling some yeah. of the most creative artwork i have ever seen in my life are on the tap taps in haiti yeah when you're stuffed inside with 40 other people uh, you know uh, cheek to cheek and sweaty elbow to sweaty elbow and no air conditioning and no anything the artwork doesn't doesn't really comfort you very much on the outside, but it's fun to look at when you're behind it. It's really quite something and for a country that has so little, you know, second poorest country on the planet. And, you know, the average salary is $2 a day and, and you know, 60% unemployment and illiteracy and all these ridiculously high numbers. And there's such faith there, such faith. And, uh, you know, it's easy for me to write books like I do being there. And I wrote a lot of The Stranger in the Lifeboat down there. And I would write it. And in, uh, in fact, the kids read it before it came out because, you know, you have to sit outside because it's too hot sometimes inside, especially if you don't have a fan or whatever. So I sit outside. And if I have a computer like I bring down, well, that's a big deal because we don't have computers. So the kids start buzzing around me immediately. And what are you doing, Mr. Mitch? Well, I'm working on a book. What's the book called, Mr. Mitch? A Stranger in the Lifeboat. Who is a stranger in the lifeboat, Mr. Mitch? Okay, this is too many questions. How about if you read it? I'll let you go read it. And then, you know, and, and so they said, yeah, can we read it? So I printed out a bunch of copies and I gave it to them and they, they went off and read it because they'll read everything and anything. When you don't have TV and you don't have internet, you don't have cell phones, whatever, you'd be amazed at how much kids love to read. And um, they did and our like 15-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds, they had some pretty good ideas on it. You know, they had some pretty good questions and I made some edits as a result of the stuff that they did. So um, their faith, you know, was a, was a big kind of. Uh, what, uh, what an amazing focus group. You're writing a book about finding God in tough circumstances and you've got kids who have known nothing but tough circumstances and who have the biggest faith, like you said, the, the kids we work with in Ghana, the kids that we have interacted with and helped in Haiti have the biggest faith of anybody I've ever met in my life. What a great focus group for you. Yeah, it's a pretty cool place to, to work and to write books, at least hopeful books, which is what I try to write. All your books that I have read, and I've read several, are very hopeful, very 
inspiring and not sugar-coated. A lot of books of faith or books that inspire faith are so sugar-coated or so pretend, you know, that uh, uh, they make my skin crawl. They, they set my teeth on edge like I just ate a cupcake from Costco, you know. But yours <laughs> are, are very beautiful and, and do inspire. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being here with us today. I enjoyed it. Is there anything I can do to bless you, to make life better, or anything I can share that would bless you in any way? Well, if you want to share with your listeners that they can uh, go to our website for Haiti, which is called havefaithhaiti.org, and read about our kids. And if they want to get involved in some way, from helping out to coming down, to volunteering, or anything like that, it's a it's a pretty comprehensive website over the course of 12 years. We've got a lot of videos of our kids and pictures and updates and everything. So I love to spread the word about that more so than about my, you know, books or things like that. So if you can tell people that's havefaithhaiti.org. Awesome. We will do that. Mitch Albaum, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Let me know if I can ever be any help or if you want to come down to Haiti. I will. Thank you. See you soon. Mitch has given us so many gifts already and so much to think about in today's conversation. Let's recap a bit, but first, a shout out to another one of my amazing podcast sponsors. If you have been listening to my voice on the radio for years, then you know that I have been around on the radio for years. Off the radio, I'm taking care of my kids, taking care of my dogs, riding my horses, growing plants in my gardens. And you know what? It hurts. It does. My hands hurt. My back hurts. My knees hurt. But when I started taking Omega XL, I noticed a difference within the first month. Omega XL, when taken every day, gives me relief in my hands and my joints like nothing else. If you suffer from pain associated with inflammation, I urge you to try Omega XL. When you try Omega XL, you will see a difference in the quality of your life. You'll see a difference in your joints. I even see a difference in the way my skin feels and the way my hair grows. I kid you not, my hair grows more rapidly when I take my Omega XL every day. In fact, if I forget to take my Omega XL for a few weeks, Oh boy, do I notice a difference. OmegaXL.com forward slash love to place your order and to discover all the wonderful goodness of Omega XL. Mitch Albom became a household name after the release of Tuesdays with Maury, a memoir of his visits with his old college professor during the last day of Maury's life. It was a book full of lessons on living, on dying, on loving. Since then, he has continuously put forth works just as insightful, compelling, inspiring, like his latest, Finding Chica and The Stranger in the Lifeboat, both available wherever books are sold. And while his books have sold over 40 million copies, you might also be interested to know he's an accomplished songwriter, pianist, lyricist. He and his wife, Janine, work tirelessly to better the lives 
of Kids at the Orphanage they started in Haiti and the many other charitable organizations that they established and support. They embody the lessons we first learned in Tuesdays with Maury. Love wins. I asked Mitch what I could do to help. He said, please spread the word about HaveFaithHaiti.org. HaveFaithHaiti.org. Go there. See how you can help, how you can become a part of this amazing mission. I'll be here in the meantime, keeping you company on the air here on Love Someone, where we have truly the greatest, most inspiring conversations. And on my new daily podcast, Hey, It's Delilah, where I share best on-air moments with you in potent daily doses. Spring is on the way, and we will get there together. Thank you for joining me on Love Someone with Delilah. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.